The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, like I mentioned, this is our seven-week spring class, and a lot of you know there's the six-year Buddhist studies curriculum. Not that that that's important, really because a lot of us just keep cycling through it. It's not meant to sort of accomplish. And then I'm now a Buddhist studies person. I have <laughs> integrated all of the Buddhist teachings. But it's more like how can we, over a course of time, take a look at all the different ways the Buddha taught. And, you know, he didn't. It's not so much that he was st- strategic in creating a curriculum, It's just he wandered about for 45 years after his deep insight and different people, different kinds of people, some monastic, some lay people would show up and he would teach. And uh, close students of the Buddha did their best to record in an oral way the teachings and eventually they got written down. And so this particular class we're looking at what did the Buddha have to say about how to cultivate social harmony. Everything from our own interest psychic, how we're getting along with ourselves, to uh, romantic or intimate relationships we might have, dear friends, family members, relationships with pets and other species, and just relationship with the wider world, all the communities that we're part of. And in a very real way, what this is, being a human being, is the activity of relating. Like that's what's happening right now. Each heart, each mind is relating to whatever it's relating to. To often, we're surprisingly, we're not even relating to the world or to another human being. What are we mostly relating to? Consciously, we're not aware of what we're doing, but we're relating to our own thoughts or interpretations of each other, of common ground, you know, the idea, I'm relating to the idea of common ground, or the idea of Mark sitting up and talking at common ground. Even when we're doing our best to be, to meet the body as it is, this dance of sensation, right? I'm sure you noticed how we go in and out of touching in to that movement of sensation, a more direct, immediate relating to the body. But then we're very quickly back into some mental image of the body or some idea about the body or some emotional reaction to the body. So we have some distance. But that's okay because that's also part of our life, that mental activity, that emotional activity but we want to notice it for what it is so we can meet it. Oh, that's the mind thinking or the mind imagining the body or the mind reacting to the body. And that's part of this lived experience right now. Can I be intimate with that? And so that's a good thing for us to keep coming back to this marriage between intimacy, showing up, engagement, and freedom, or the freedom of non-attachment. Because one of the things, like uh, just with something simple, you know, and we'll talk about actual, you know, what we normally mean by relationship, like with a friend, but even our relationship with the breath, have you noticed, like when you're doing that mindfulness of breathing practice, and we bring attention to the physicality of breathing in and breathing out, and we try to bring that whole, full presence to the breath as it goes in and out. It's so easy to catch ourselves being controlling. It's, it's hard to be just there with the breathing process. And the more intimate, the more close the attention is, the more the tendency to be projecting some agenda onto the breath, onto the physicality of breathing. And so if we're doing it with our breath, you can bet we're doing it with our cats, 
and our partners and our family and the world. We're projecting and that projection involves some kind of, like one way we can talk about it is feeding. Like I'm relating to you, I'm actually relating to my idea about you and in that process I'm trying to get something, I'm trying to feed off of the relationship. I'm trying to have some need be met in how I'm relating. Even like now relating to Kamagon or relating to these teachings. We're trying to extract something often when we're in relationship with whatever. And that just goes pretty deep. And then what's the alternative? Because, you know, just telling ourselves to stop it <laughs> doesn't work. And it, it just turns into another, like trying, you know, trying to be that person who stops it, who doesn't control the breath. And this is where, like, well, what's the alternative to intimacy and attachment? Like, what is intimacy and non-attachment? Like, how do we operationalize that so we can actually begin to develop some skill with being present but not tight in all of our relationships and all of our relating? It's more active to say relating. It's just not as common usage, you know, here in English to say, talk about relating. You know, we want to turn it into a noun, a relationship. But but in our mind, at least, we want to think about it as a very dynamic thing. And the nice thing about making it relating is I could have really messed up and been relating in an unskillful way, done is what has been done, but I'm still in the relating, so I can start relating skillfully. So the relationship isn't like bad. There may have been moments when the way of relating was planting seeds of stress, but it's always in motion. There's always the next moment of relating to be skillful. So we don't need to sort of define a relationship as good or bad. It's just a process of relating. Sometimes it's skillful. Sometimes it's less than skillful. And this... So moving, like really getting to know that territory when I'm relating to the body, when I'm relating to the moment, when I'm relating to the thinking mind, when I'm relating to the cat, when I'm relating to the person I live with. When does it become the cause for stress, planting seeds of stress? And when can relating be a healing and liberating process? And one thing to keep in mind around that is this like unskillful having that stingy quality where there's a somebody in a business-like relationship trying to get something and not get screwed in the relationship. Get more than I'm giving, right? And then we'll know that's sort of one in a more operational way to begin to sense when I might in any given moment be relating in an unhelpful way. Oh yeah, trying to get something here. Trying to make something happen, trying to convince this person, trying to, right, there's that tight energy. And and when we look behind that tight energy, there's a sense of a somebody who is trying to get something, trying to get somewhere. And I'm using this Way this moment, these moments of relating to fulfill some need, which is totally normal, <laughs> you know. But what what is not helpful is to be unaware of what's actually going on. So, what in our practice, we're just illuminating it, and the more we illuminate it, the more we see that there is a way to take care of ourselves. But when we're when we're sort of defined framed ourselves as a hungry beast. You know, in in Buddhism they have this very graphic image as one of the realms of existence. This is sort of Buddhist cosmology. And one of the realms of existence is the realm of the hungry ghosts. And they have a pinhole mouth that they're depicted as having a huge belly as a way of sort of endless hunger. 
And with the tiny, tiny, tiny mouth, they can never get close to satisfying their hunger. And, you know, we have sometimes a lot of that characteristic, sometimes just a little. But we have, all of us have it within us, right, that hungry ghost, where we're looking for relationships to feed us. Um, I think it was Ajahn Tanisaro uh, shared this research about mice, of all things, but it's, it's really telling because I think it has a lot to do with relationships. See what you think. So evidently, people have done, unfortunately, research on mice, and they found that if they feed mice a diet that doesn't have certain nutri- nutrients or proteins, the mice keep eating, even if they become obese, they keep eating because there's some sense, sensor you know, in the system that isn't getting the protein, isn't getting the nutrients it needs. So in a kind of a simplistic way, the mouse thinks, keep eating, you're eventually going to get what you need, right? But it doesn't happen. And this is the thing. If we don't really understand how to have wholesome relationships, because as a beast, conditioned beast, we have social needs, all of us. And so here we are in relationship with ourselves and with each other. And if the way we're trying to take care of our needs, you know, if we're just getting empty calories, we just keep being needy in relationships, never getting what we need, right? And then what do we do? We feel betrayed, we feel frustrated, and then we give up. I'm done with relationships. You know, some version of you and me being a hermit, you know, and like, all I need is a TV or whatever, you know, but I'm done. You know, I'm not going to see my parents, my family, done with pets, feed that cat every day, and it doesn't want to sit on my lap. (laughs) I mean, we've all had that you know, our version of that, like not wanting to be part of it, part of the social realm. But there's no way out because that's who we are. You know, we're social beings. So what we're doing is we're using the capacity, we the sort of clarity and depth and breadth of, you know, this capacity to comprehend with awareness, with mindful awareness, so that we learn how relating relationships can be healing and, in a sense, satisfying. But it's not by trying to get something from them. That's the real kicker, right? And so there's a, it requires a real revolution. And we've all had little tastes of this this flip where we realize that trying to trying to take care of me or to get something amplifies the sense of not having enough the sense of being empty the sense of being helpless but if we're relating in a generous way including to ourselves in a generous way and including everybody else in a generous way, in a non-stingy way, we start to feel pretty good, like well-fed, like we're getting the nutrients, the social, our social needs met. So that's sort of interesting. I, uh, I read a while back in Psychology Today, there was an article about some of the recent research and happiness. It's, it's kind of been a thing in Western psychology the last, I don't know, maybe 15 years. And they have this idea of happiness set points. And it's, uh, the research shows that it's pretty stable. Like how I might report my own happiness doesn't really change through the course of a life. There's, and they found there's just a few things that creates a long-term shift and the way one might report their self-happiness, their happiness, their sense of how happy they are. And so 
what makes it worse would be something like chronic unemployment or losing a child. And interestingly, what makes what tends to shift the set point of happiness higher in a more in a stable way, like not temporarily going up because you won the lottery and then after a couple of weeks you're back where you were, which is what they found. But choosing to be altruistic creates a long-term shift in one's happiness. But you have to choose to do it. It can't be something you do because of some social obligation. But you choose to be generous, you choose to be altruistic, to serve others or whatever. You know, and it can look any number of ways, of course. That really changes. You know, contributing. And we kind of know this, you know. Like that's actually one of our social needs, to contribute. But the trouble is we tend to have a, uh, too many specific ideas of what that's supposed to look like as opposed to like sensing this moment, showing up to this moment, and discovering, well, how can I be in this moment in a generous way? What would that look like? What would a generous, a non... St- Sometimes it's better to use the negative. Like what would non-stinginess look like in this moment? Because when we use a word like generosity, when we put it in the positive, you know how our mind is with idealistic things. We immediately construct a picture of ourselves being generous, but it's, it's often idealistic, not realistic. But it's much more pragmatic to imagine this heart, this way I'm relating right now, where there's no stinginess. And it might actually create more bandwidth or more sort of a sense of possibilities and creative possibilities and how I might actually organically show up in this moment and relate to this person or these people or this situation. Yeah, so that's, you know, it's just useful to even have something simple and, and you might need to change the words like, non-stingy and stingy may not work, but just to create, and remember, you could create this dichotomy like, oh, this is unskillful and this is skillful as a way to beat yourself up or to judge yourself, but you'll see that doesn't help, right? And it isn't a healing, healthy way to be relating to our own life, to use the Buddhist teachings to better beat ourselves up, to judge ourselves or have shame. But what we're doing is we're using these teachings to illuminate what's already happening. The heart is always already in relationship to the present moment. Sometimes the way we're relating is like not being here, distracted or in denial. You know, sometimes we're controlling and aversive or fearful or greedy, manipulative, controlling. And hopefully over these seven weeks, even within our own heart and mind when we're alone, but also in all of the complexity of our relationships, we're going to start being interested. Oh, how's the heart relating right now? Generous or stingy? Open or closed? Fixed or unfixed? Right? You know, having a clear defining idea of what's happening right now, who you are, who we are together. Got it? I have my idea. I trust my idea. I'm not that interested in change, changing my ideas about who you are, who I am, and how we are together. So I feel a little bit threatened by mindfulness because mindfulness changes things. I just read this in one of the weekly practice groups, this quote I like a lot from Thich Nhat Hanh, If you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. You could just say, don't go into relationship because, you know, a healthy relationship relating with awareness and really um, curious about the complexity. Because when we're relating to the present moment to another human being, everything we see, everything we feel, 
the whole you know the whole complexity of the experience is triggering sympathetically vibrating all of our past conditioning it all comes alive in moments of relating and uh, so when we're really uh, training ourselves to be there it can feel really overwhelming even ordinary moments of relating really simple ways of relating just like seeing somebody in the grocery store and just having a simple those oranges look good you know interaction but you know how the mind sees the person, how the mind interprets the size of the person, the race, how we perceive gender, all that sympathetically vibrates all of our conditioning around all those factors. It all shows up. And it's not just like our personal conditioning. It's our cultural conditioning, our ancestral conditioning, even the genetic Conditioning, all of that gets triggered. Right? Everything is impactful. Our heart, the mind is so sensitive. And so it makes, well, you know, as we unpack this uh, experience of relating relationship, you know, it makes sense how defended, how, you know, the different patterns we've, I'm mostly unconsciously have become dependent on sort of surviving our the intensity of our social you know interactions or social positions because to really be undefended to really be present to really be in that complexity of relating that's a real um, that's a real uh, it's already a huge step towards liberation just to be getting a sense of how wild that is. Have you ever had that experience? Like I'm sure you have in your own way. Think of those experiences where you're just with another person, but because you're in your patterns, you know, it feels relatively safe to be talking or interacting. But if something shifts, if something happens that changes the predictability of how the two of you are relating and kind of breaks down the expectations, it can get very real, very alive, and very unknown very quickly. And it can feel overwhelming. And you'll catch yourself, I've seen this many times, like bringing structure back in, redefining like what we're doing here. You know, no, no, no. Because... Well, we like we like our safety, and we'll take it any way we can get it. And the you know the way that we generally find safety is we impose some idea on the situation, and it, it doesn't necessarily appear this way, but it it is a little bit aggressive to be putting our ideas on everything. And uh, you know we try our best to get people to conform to our ideas, but they've got their own ideas, darn it. And uh, sometimes we'll have a war, and sometimes we have this sort of treaty that you can have your idea, I'll have my idea, but my idea includes that you somehow agree with my idea. And I know, but I don't admit it consciously, that your idea somehow presumes that I agree with your idea. And we're not really meeting, and that's like we're in relationship with our idea much more than we are with the person or with the community or you know the situation at hand. And it should really break our heart open because no wonder so much of the time we don't feel that alive. We feel often oppressed because we've taken the strategy of not really being there in you know, what could be very alive. So that would be really good homework so that next week, uh, one of the components of the Buddhist Studies class for those who are brand new to the the Buddhist Studies program is every other week, so on the even weeks, 
week two, week four, week six, the last half an hour will break into small groups. And this isn't an optional, it's uh, part of the program. So by coming to the Buddhist studies, you're agreeing to stay. Of course, you know, if you're sick or whatever, just take care of yourselves or if you're out of town on work or something. But if you're here, don't sneak out before the small groups. Stay with the small groups. And so prepare because this is part of, you know, especially with this class on wholesome relating, you know, it's a perfect opportunity to really show up, practice showing up, and to notice what that's like for us. And so one of the things you can do in real time next week in the small group, but also you can be reporting about your experiences through the week, is just in simple ways, and especially where you feel safe. Right. So start where you feel safe. Really ordinary experiences. I am not kidding. Like when you do have your cat on your lap, or you're hanging out with your dog, or the neighbor's dog, or the kid down the street who just happens to be playing out front, and you have a two-minute conversation, or have a little petting session, or whatever it might be. But really see if you can trust letting all the ways the mind defines the experience, let every all of that fall into the background, and just enter you know, that marriage of intimacy and non-grasping. So there's, in other words, there's intimacy and the mind is empty of any strategizing, any sense of a somebody, even a somebody trying to have a really nice experience or a really beautiful experience, or even a somebody who's really trying to understand something about relationship or relating. Just see what happens like when you feel relatively safe of just letting there be a natural organic relating. And then bring it into slightly more complex situations where you might actually have to talk or move with the person or do something. But remember, we, not I mean, all of us, it's just kind of a, essential principle in educational psychology that people learn best, and it's probably true for other species besides human beings, but we learn best when the success rate is about, I I forget from my (laughs) graduate studies in educational psychology, but it's like 93, 94% success, 6% mistakes. That is optimal learning. So like when you take up a situation to practice putting down some of the defensiveness, some of the controlling, some of the retreating, you know, like we have different modes. Some of us uh, find safety by being more controlling. Other people might find safety by withdrawing in some way from the situation, not really being there. But so you you have to get to learn, get to know your patterns so that you can see what it is, have a relationship with them. Oh, honey, I see this. I feel this. Is this needed here? What would happen? What's what's another way to be relating right now? Just to be curious, like, is there another way the heart, the mind can be showing up, can be in relationship or relating to what's here and now? And then just remember You know, in Buddhism, we talk about the unwholesome roots and the wholesome roots. And this may be enough. It's really simple, just three. You could probably guess it even if you've never studied the Buddhist teachings. But the unwholesome roots are greed, hatred, and delusion. And the wholesome roots, non-greed, that generosity, the non-stinginess, contentment, non-hate, kindness, compassion, not wanting to harm, and non-delusion, right? So here, non-delusion has a lot to do with not believing our thoughts are more than what they are. They're just a thought. It's not the relationship. It's not that moment-to-moment dynamic of the sensitive heart being touched 
by the moment, by the experiences that are coming and going. So delusion here and distraction really almost always involves a mind identified with a thought, an interpretation, taking the thought to be more than what it is. Like if I have the thought, oh, all of you are really into this talk, right? And I have that thought, oh, everybody's really into this talk. See, it, the identification, the mind fixating on the thought, immediately I'm not intimate anymore in the moment. And so we're often, that's the real essence of delusion, is when the mind is seduced by some interpretation, this person's bad, this is not good, I'm not safe, this is great. So it doesn't have to be a negative interpretation. But any mental construct and the identification where the mind is taking that construct, that definition, that interpretation, to be more than what it, ri- what it is. It's just an ephemeral thought being known. The thought or the interpretation isn't the experiencing, isn't the relating. Because the relating, no matter how we conceive it, it's never a concept relating. And that's what I was saying about like getting used to that wild, unformed nature of relating. I try to do it in in sort of really safe things. Like one of my regular training places is where I walk from my house, which is about seven blocks away here. And I uh, sometimes I'll do it twice a day, often even. Um, and so, you know, it just takes about 10 minutes. And I try, you know, when I remember, and I usually remember at least a few times during that 10 minutes, and then each, you know, will last for a few moments before I get lost in thought, of course. But I try. I practice being in relationship with the walking, and not the idea that I'm walking from my house to work or from work to my house, or that I got a lot of work to do. Those thoughts might be there, of course, but I'm training my mind not to identify or fix, so I can be in the wildness of seeing and feeling the physicality. And thoughts are just thoughts. And be in relationship with the present moment. A beast walking. And it's so amazing that like in those incredibly ordinary moments, there can be really everything the heart could ever really want. The freedom, the sense of fullness, the absence of any problem can arise. And then it will go away when the mind comes back into its more ordinary way of relating, which is in terms of our conceptual projections about this and that, which is oppressive. But we don't even realize how oppressive most of our way of relating is to our life, to others, because we don't taste that often that kind of freedom. And it's that contrast where we realize how oppressive the normal way we relate is. Because there's so much fear, so much need, so much baggage in all of our relationships. So really look, and you might even remember relating times of relating that don't exist for you now, but where it was just the dance between you and that other person, for example, was really unencumbered by a lot of projection and just had a lot of natural freedom. And we might wrongly assume that it was because that person was so special. They were just great. But it might be much more about the skill in the way the mind was relating than the particular person being so special. And that, and that's really, we want to make that because then that opens up the possibility that anybody, me relating to anybody, even someone who's really obnoxious, 
could have that much freedom or that much healing or that much whatever. We don't have to look for the our soulmate or the p- perfect situation. No, you know, clearly there are some really abusive or oppressive situations that w- relating wisely would lead us to run very fast in the other direction or to protect ourselves in some way. Because that's really the essence of that, that kind of being in that wild space. Because we're not confused by our projections, we're going to sense danger much more quickly than we would if I was sort of using projections, caught in my thoughts about things. Our radar and intuition, whatever you want to call it, is, is really powerful when we're not, when the mind isn't fixed with thoughts. Really, it's a, I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's like initially it seems overwhelming, the sensitivity, because there's this idea that I'm so sensitive. But with more practice, we realize that that thought that I'm so sensitive is not needed. There is sensitivity. The heart is definitely feeling, sensing a lot but nobody has a problem. And that's when we start to feel quite alive in the sensitivity and much more intuitive and much more nimble and creative in how we protect ourselves, how we take care of others, how we dance with the different situations that we're relating to. So just to sum up that before opening it up for discussion, so with our small groups for the last half an hour next week, you know, you're really mining, you're observing all the ordinary and extraordinary and whatever relating, moments of relating for the next week. And you're just experimenting, especially in places where you feel some safety, dropping armor, being really interested in relating as a, Uh, Not something that you're doing, but something that's happening. Relating is happening, right? There's a sensitive heart being sensitive to what's moving. And everything the heart is sensing is triggering naturally, unavoidably. Everything from the past, it's anywhere related to what it's sensing. And all of that is dancing. And even when we choose wisely safe situations to do this, you'll, f- you'll know you're doing it right when the moment starts to feel more and more alive and possibly even in moments overwhelming. But then just let that wisdom voice go in, come in and say, like, uh, I know you feel unsafe. Are you actually unsafe here? Right? And then let wisdom do its job. Look around. Are you unsafe? And if you're not unsafe, then if, you, if the conclusion is that you're not unsafe, then remind yourself that even though a lot is moving, even though this feels overwhelming, I'm pretty sure it's safe. So honey, see if it's okay to relax. See what happens if you soften. I just let the sensitive heart be in relationship with everything that's moving. This is basically our meditation practice, right? And the reason we sit in a quiet room with not a lot of activity in a way, place we feel safe is because this is hard work. We have to learn a whole new skill set of being alive and open and how to be in relationship in a very wild and free way. Now, the other thing is really you'll catch yourself that, you know, there's sort of like the setup. Okay, I'm going to do, Mark mentioned this, I'm going to try this out. This seems like relatively safe. And you sort of do it in a more thoughtful way. But there will be a lot of moments where you'll be naturally, you know, noticing you're in relationship and noticing how heavy or tight it is or noticing how free it is. So learn from those places where there is a lot of suffering or there's a lot of freedom and get curious about like 
why is this moment of relating here, why is there so much freedom and ease here? Why is this so heavy, so hard, so entangled? And see if you can kind of start doing the correlation like, oh, when the unwholesome roots are active, greed, anger, and delusion, being fixated on our thoughts or interpretations, things get really entangled and heavy. When there's a heart free of greed, generous, content, a heart free of anger, hate, kind and compassionate, a heart free of delusion, seeing things as they are, relating seems really healing and beautiful and liberating. Wow, how interesting is that? So uh, I'm going to save a little time at the end just to talk about some of the nuts and bolts and about how we're going to need to start uh, changing things a little bit because of the probable spreading of the coronavirus. But let's take a little bit of time. I'm sure some of you might have your own learnings from over the years of your practice or questions that might have come up in what I've said. Remember, we we are both live streaming. There's a camera in the corner. And also we record the talks if people are out of town and want to listen. Um, so keep that in mind if ever you speak up. But when we use this mic so we can record your comments or questions, you've got to point it like this, close to your mouth. So anybody want to begin? What questions do you have or comments about what you've learned in terms of relating skillfully over the years of your life or last week? <laughs> yeah, right behind you. Feel free to say your name if you'd like. My name is Russ, and I'm wondering what you make of the idea of someone being introverted or extroverted as it is to relating to others. Yeah, I mean, we'll have our own patterns that we've picked up. The interesting thing is what has been driving those patterns. You know, once a pattern is set, it tends to, because it gets repeated, it becomes a groove, becomes one's personality or character. But it is useful to, um, you know, it's not about changing ourselves from an introvert to an extrovert or from an extrovert to an introvert, but just letting the whole thing reveal itself. And is there some fear in an extrovert like fear of silence or fear of letting somebody else lead the show? Or is there some fear behind being an introvert? fear of exposure, fear of being seen, fear of making a fool out of myself. We just want to be honest. We want to illuminate everything so we can better take care of ourselves and take care of everybody else. So we're not illuminating everything because we're bad and we need to be punished. You know, This willingness, this intentional choice to become more sensitive in relating we're doing because we care about this life and we care about those around us and we don't want to cause ourselves and others harm. So we're going to pay attention. And so get interested in that. But sure, there's, you know, there's so many different patterns, even within us, let alone, you know. And we might have a particular pattern like being an extrovert, but is it in every situation or does it arise... Like I'm a different kind of person when I'm with my family of origin than when I am at the front of the room. And when I'm at home with my partner, you know, I'm really different in a way that I would never want you to see. (laughs) But saying something like that will keep you guessing. (laughs) What does he do? (laughs) Thanks, Russ. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, maybe all the way over here. Second row of chairs, and we can take turns helping pass it. I should say, mic close, but not touching the mouth. Yeah, I wasn't going to. So how do you, I know you don't have kids, but how do you approach this as a parent and feeling the responsibility to teach someone else how to relate even though you're not very good at it. Um, Just that whole conundrum. 
Well, just saying that, like, can you imagine? Yeah, how the question is really about. Well, yeah, Scott's monitoring it, so he'd let us know if it's not picking up. But anyway, um, I can repeat the question. Let me know if it's not accurate. But uh, in a situation where there are children and you want to relate skillfully and feeling responsible to help them learn how to relate skillfully and not feeling that you're that good at it. And what I was about to say is that just, I mean, depending on the age of the children, of course, but at some age, even be able to say that I really want to be a good role model and that I'm aware that I'm not always a good role model is being a really good role model, right? And to do that in real time especially. Like I was a classroom teacher for a number of years, all kinds of different grades, from preschool up to junior high. And um, and it's really powerful when, without losing your power, because you need to kind of manage the class, but it's a, it's a really powerful move in real time to be pointing out how I haven't been that skillful, how I just handled that. And to just say, this is a thing about relating is an ongoing thing. So I didn't really say what I wanted to say. I didn't really handle that skillfully. Let me try again. This is what I wish I had said. And uh, that is such good modeling. <laughs> like why do we expect we're always going to get it right the first time or, or what's first out of our mouth? But we can recognize, you know what? That doesn't feel so good, what I just said. Let me say it this way. And the, th- and the thing we have to understand, too, about children, you know, you know directly, but it's a very deep, deep conditioned, uh, in the early years, of course, they're completely dependent on us. So it evokes that that sort of hovering, like, you can't take care of yourself, so I have to be there. But that doesn't work when they're 37. So how do we do that transition? You know, we don't, it's like, it has to be evolving all the way along. Because what it means to be a skillful friend, parent, right, why would we think? Because sometimes, even with our dear ones, or like uh, our lovers, there are moments when we're a parent with them because they've devolved and they're just in a really childlike place right now and they need a parent to hold them or to whatever. And But, um, you know, that's not most of the time. And sometimes, you know, they're a, they're a very successful child who, or whatever, that doesn't need our advice at all. They need us to listen to them. And are we willing to play that role with your children? Like when they're, they're the wise one in the room. You know, and just... So, you know, at some age, and I think it happens pretty early, like about six, mostly you're modeling at that point. The real uh, kind of transmission happens in the earlier years. And by the time they're five or six... You know, they're much more getting the transmission from the peer group. And so your influence is they're watching you and seeing what kind of integrity you have in terms of how how you handle things. Are you walking your talk? Like what you tell them to do, are you doing that? (laughs) Yeah, thanks. We have time for one more question or comment, sharing from your own life. Anything comes to mind that feels good to bring out to the room? Yeah, John. Let's sit here. Uh, my name's John. Oh my God, I just touched the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be quarantined. Um, so this is not quite off topic, but it just, I realized that having a really terrible childhood has some advantages. Um, So a father who didn't care what I did and a mother who really did but was too depressed to actually act on it. And I got through that okay. And so when my children, my son and my daughter, 
I trusted them to find their own way. I didn't lay a lot of stuff on them. And it really, really worked. I mean, the, the idea was is that, you know, I made sure they weren't going to harm themselves, obviously. But in terms of directing them, like, maybe you should think about this, maybe you should think about that, I never did that. It was just all the conversations my wife and I had that were never saying, oh, and listen to what we're saying. And I think it was because of that experience early on that I really trusted them to be able to find their own way. That sounds great. And we want to have an open mind because it could have been even better, perhaps. Maybe there were a few moments where you could have been a little bit directive and, sh- and kind of mapped it out for them in a way that would have been just the right intervention in the right way, offered generously, no expectations. So we don't want to enter any relationship with a plan, like, oh, this is what my father did to me, so I'm not going to do that, because that's our tendency, as opposed to who we are and how we're relating, being born out of the moment. And that's the Buddha knowing Dhamma, being awake, intimate with the way it is, and let that inform. So then who John is as a parent, you, you'll see it in real time. You'll see it the same time the kids see it because you you're not trying to be a, a particular kind of father. You're choosing to be intimate. You're practicing really being there, and you're just as interested to see what comes out of your mouth as they might be or not be. <laughs> Yeah, well, what I want to say is that this is something I've just kind of discovered right now. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, this happens. You didn't so write it do down this. and follow it? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just I realized I think that may have been the origin of, yeah. uh, of this way we brought our children up. Yeah. Yeah, and it is great if we can learn from our suffering. But sometimes we just get confused by our suffering. You know, it just depends on the supports that we've had in our lives. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.